0: This week, Ryan Haas from the Brookings Institution on Taiwan
1: Beijing's ultimate goal from my perspective is to win without fight
0: Natasha Kassam from the Lowy Institute on Australian Public Opinion on Climate
2: And we can see that the vast majority of Australians think that Australia should be doing more And ASPE's Dr
0: Marcus Hellyer on the cost of defence
3: Belgium and the Netherlands could maybe get by on 2%. I'm not sure Australia can.
0: This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Recently, national security debates in the US and Australia have been heavily focused on the likelihood of conflict in the Taiwan Straits. Anastasia Kapetis is joined by Ryan Haas, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, to discuss the credibility of this narrative. They explore the likelihood of conflict over Taiwan and how Taiwan can counter China's actions.
4: This morning, we're welcoming Ryan Haas to the Policy, Guns and Money podcast. Ryan is a senior fellow at the foreign policy program at Brookings. He has also advised the Obama White House on all things China, Taiwan and Mongolia as a National Security Council editor. And his research at the moment focuses on the most pressing challenges of the region, Welcome, Brian.
1: Thank you, Anastasia. It's great to be with you.
4: So let's just get straight into it. You've written a piece of commentary recently that argues that there's a lot of commentary in the US at the moment that, that argues that a Chinese attack on Taiwan is imminent. A number of national security commentators in Australia believe the same, citing things like China's military buildup, increase in PLAF testing of Taiwanese airspace in the Straits the ease with which China took over Hong Kong and the General Assembly supported garnered at the time. And perhaps the fervent desire of Xi to go down in history as the man who reunified Taiwan with the mainland And that China at the moment may believe that it should seize the political moment of a moderate in the White House in a time of domestic political crisis. What's wrong with these kinds of arguments in your view?
1: Well, I see two potential shortcomings in these arguments. The first is that they don't seem to work very hard to understand Beijing's calculus on Taiwan. Beijing's ultimate goal, from my perspective, is to win without fighting. It wants to compel unification without having to resort to force. It wants to create a fait accompli so that the people of Taiwan feel like they have no credible alternative other than to accept unification, which leads to the second shortcoming, which is that highlighting Taiwan's vulnerabilities without offering any solutions, it does Beijing's work for them. Beijing would like to erode the Taiwan people's confidence in their future so that they can see unification as their only path to peace and safety and prosperity. And harping on Taiwan as the most dangerous place on earth without offering any, any solutions or recommendations, just sort of, it undermines confidence and it risks carrying away investment and talent from Taiwan. From my perspective, a healthier approach to this challenge is to put the shoe on the other foot, to make the point that the attitudes of Taiwan's 23 million people are going to be decisive about Taiwan's future, and then to ask the question, what is Beijing doing to make its offering more attractive to their interest?
4: So what is Beijing doing to make their offering more attractive?
1: Beijing seems to be following an approach that it's better to be feared than liked at the moment. Um, They're doing a lot of things. They're, They're trying to sow domestic division inside Taiwan. Nobody benefits from a divided Taiwan more than Beijing. They're trying to squeeze Taiwan's international space, trying to poach diplomatic allies, limit Taiwan's participation in international institutions. Uh, and pressure multinational corporations to accept Beijing's preferred framing of the Taiwan issue. I think they're trying to increase their military presence around Taiwan. They're simulating invasion scenarios. They're increasing their presence operations around the north, south, east, and west sides of Taiwan, uh, which is putting a lot of psychological press, stress on the people of Taiwan. And then I think they're trying to weaken Taiwan's economic competitiveness, uh, trying to attract Taiwan's top engineers to, to move to the mainland and also deterring third countries from negotiating FTAs or other economic arrangements with Taiwan. So my sense is that they're trying to create conditions for the Taiwan people to feel like resistance is futile, that they are alone and they're vulnerable to deal with China, uh, and so they might as well sue for peace while they still have the chance. So I I take a pretty clear-eyed view of the challenge that China poses to the people of Taiwan, even as I I discount slightly the imminence of uh, the potential for an invasion scenario.
4: So how do the Taiwanese themselves feel about these kinds of drumbeat of war narratives from the region?
1: Well, I, I have to acknowledge up front that I'm not uh, qualified to speak on their behalf. And I, I sure accept that there are diversity of views in Taiwan on this question. But my general sense, you know, based upon a number of conversations, is that many people in Taiwan find this drumbeat of war narrative to be a bit frustrating. First, it, mm-hmm. it treats Taiwan as an object of U.S.-China rivalry or as something that a rising China will gobble up as it grows, uh, rather than sort of accepting and acknowledging that the people of Taiwan have agency in their own future, and they're not inanimate objects left to the designs of others. <laughs> but you know, also, the, the people of Taiwan have been living with this threat for a long time, for most of the people there their entire lives. Uh, and so it's yep. a bit artificial for Western observers to wake up today and realize, oh, my God, <laughs> Taiwan is the most dangerous place on earth. We better sound yeah. the alarm and, uh, and do something about it, because this is, this is just a fact of life that they've been dealing with uh, forever. So
4: what do you think is behind the recent catastrophizing of the Chinese issue in the West? Is there a political, domestic political dimension to all of this?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, that's uh, a great word, catastrophizing. Uh, I love it, but I, I'm not sure there's one single explanation for the recent bout of anxiety. Um, I think that there are a few things that may be happening simultaneously. One, uh, China's actions certainly deserve increased scrutiny, you know, from Hong Kong to Xinjiang, from the South China Sea to suppression of dissent at home, the China-India border. I mean, there are enough data points to draw a trend line here about China acting more aggressively and being more risk-tolerant in its approach uh, to pursuing its ambitions. And I think that that China's growing capabilities also have been more visible and more felt in Taiwan than they were previously. Uh, Part of this is Mm -hmm. just a function of the fact that that China has significantly more military capabilities than it did before. And it's going to exercise those capabilities in ways that are new and, and more visible than they have been in the past. So for example, when uh, their aircraft carrier transits from the South China Sea back to port, it will transit past Taiwan uh, in in ways that uh, are discomforting to, to people in Taiwan. But China also has more economic and diplomatic clout than it did before to put in service mm-hmm. of its objectives of trying to isolate Taiwan and then lastly, I mean, I would just suggest that in a crowded marketplace of ideas about China's future trajectory, big, mm. bold, scary arguments uh, do a pretty good job of attracting attention. Deeply researched, <laughs> nuanced, historically grounded analysis, maybe a little, a little bit less so. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one variable that I would suggest has not contributed to the catastrophizing of the Taiwan issue is saying when. Uh, President Tsai pledged at the outset of her presidency that she would be stable, steady and predictable. And from my perspective, I think she's stuck to her word.
4: She's achieved that.
1: Yeah. I think she's been a a very stable, steady presence.
4: So you've outlined quite the huge range of kind of grey zone actions that China's undertaking against Taiwan at the moment. What are the limits for China here? I mean, what do you you think the most logical next steps are for for China? More of the same, more economic coercion, uh, more side disinformation ops, some kind of kinetic action against something like Taiping Island?
1: Well, I I can't rule out any scenario, uh, and that's part of what is so disconcerting about talking about Taiwan issues. Mm -hmm. But from my perspective, uh, I think that many people in Beijing continue to believe that they have the capabilities to deter. Taiwan from declaring independence or permanently separating from the mainland, which is their immediate objective, and that over time, they have the tools uh, and the growing asymmetry uh, in power that will allow them to compel Taiwan ultimately to accept that unification is their only path to peace and prosperity. So in my conversations with Chinese counterparts, I don't detect a ton of, uh, of immediate anxiety, alarm, or panic. Uh, I think that we'll likely see more of the same, more efforts to create fissures within Taiwan society, more efforts to squeeze Taiwan's international space uh, as China gains you know greater naval and air capabilities. I think that that will be felt uh, around Taiwan. And then I think that there will be a you know a continuing effort to try to lure away and pull away as much talent and know-how from Taiwan to the mainland as Beijing can. Uh, in a way of sort of hollowing out uh, Taiwan's economic competitiveness and making them feel like they are alone and isolated and it's just Beijing and Taipei and they're going to have to figure it out on their own. And so that's the challenge that we are all up against. And, and I think that that we need to rise to that challenge.
4: So how do we do that? For example, um, President Biden's recently elevated the Quad to a head of state summit. Um, what might be an appropriate role for the Quad to take here?
1: Well, I, I would like to see the Quad do more to embed Taiwan in its regional projects. Uh, there are a lot of areas where Taiwan has a lot to offer to the region, whether it's on supply chain security, um, cyber security, countering disinformation, climate resilience, uh, democratic resilience. Taiwan should be at the table for these conversations. It should be contributing uh, to, to those regional discussions. I also think that there may be a scope for other Members of the Quad to sort of look at the bookshelf of what uh, the United States and Taiwan have done, and pull off the bookshelf to see what may, might apply to them. And I'm just as one example. After COVID nineteen broke out, uh, there was a MOU that was signed uh, between the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States and their counterpart, the Taiwan Ministry of Health. Something like that may uh, be applicable uh, in in other settings as well. And also, you know, just as a a idea. Uh, why not have all four Quad members negotiate trade or investment agreements with Taiwan in parallel? Mm -hmm. That would, uh, I think, negate uh, a little bit of Beijing's efforts to try to isolate and intimidate countries from, from going down that path.
4: Does the Quad need to do better about coordinating its public messaging about Taiwan to the region?
1: Well, I think that the more that the Quad leaders can sort of pick up where the G7 foreign ministers left off, and carry that forward. You know, it's notable that uh, the leaders of the United States and Japan, when they met bilaterally, referenced Taiwan for the first time in over 50 years in a joint leaders' communique. It's notable that the United States and South Korean leader uh, referenced Taiwan. All these things matter because they demonstrate that Taiwan is not alone, they're not isolated, and that uh, what happens in Taiwan has regional and global impact.
4: Thanks, Ryan. Um, I think uh, we've reached the end of our time together this morning, but thank you so much for explaining your thoughts about Taiwan uh, and where do we go from here?
1: Thank you, Anastasia.
4: Natasha Kassam
0: is Director of Public Opinion and Foreign Policy at the Lowy Institute. She joins Dr Robert Glasser to discuss Lowy's Climate Poll 2021, an annual report on Australia's national attitude to climate change.
5: Thanks very much for joining me, Natasha, here today to talk about this very important uh, Lowy poll on support in Australia or opinions in Australia on climate change.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Rabbit.
5: So maybe before we get started on the actual detail of the poll and the poll results, can you just maybe spend a few moments explaining what the challenges are producing a poll like this? Just the efficiency, the accuracy those sorts of things. That would be really useful.
2: Absolutely. So it is imperfect in many ways, but we do work very hard to ensure that we have a representative sample across the country that is very much balanced and weighted to our population statistics and what the Australian Bureau of Statistics says via the census that the Australian public looks like. So we do a few things to do that. One is that we conduct our surveys both online and on the telephone. And we still do telephone surveys to ensure that we're reaching that small percentage of the Australian public that is actually not using the internet. Uh, We also try very hard to make sure that the people we speak to are random. In terms of social sciences, that randomness is really what helps us ensure that we are getting an accurate look at the whole country. At the end, we do look at all of those numbers. We do make sure that we have an accurate reflection of different age groups, of different demographics in terms of income and education. And of course, when we're talking about climate, very importantly, that we have a good mix of both urban and rural and regional residents from Australia.
5: What about the question of uh, the questions themselves? Uh, I've certainly seen examples where the form the question takes kind of is a leading question and and leads to the uh, sometimes leads to the answer that the uh, the questioner wants to get how do you deal with that issue
2: it's a really important challenge. And there are a range of different organizations that are doing different kinds of polling. Sometimes you'll see an advocacy group, for example, that are doing polling that is designed to inform and educate, as well as to get a read on the public view. Now, Mm -hmm. we try very hard not to do that. Um, Our polling is non-educational. We really want to understand a snapshot of what people think, rather than trying to lead them in a particular direction. We test all of our questions to ensure then, quite neutral. Um, We sometimes cannot help but use language that does provide a little bit more information uh, to ensure that our respondents know what we're talking about. But then we will try, for example, the following year to ask a question flipped around the other way to make sure that we really can gauge sentiment where it is. From our purposes, we want to inform policy by informing policymakers with what really people do think, rather than trying to kind of lead them in a particular direction. But it is an ongoing challenge.
5: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get into the substance of the report. And I just want to highlight for our listeners how the timing, the importance of the timing of this report. We have a major climate, international climate negotiation coming up at the end of the year in Scotland. We have a new administration in the US, the Biden administration, which has committed to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 a huge change on over uh, relative to his predecessor president trump we have major allies doing the same strengthening their commitments to reduce greenhouse gases we have allies talking about the european parliament for example talking about levying uh, uh, essentially a carbon levy on imports from countries with weaker emission reduction strategies and we have our own Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, talking about his desire to achieve net zero 2050, and we'll see as Australia develops its uh, revised contribution to the climate negotiations, we'll see whether that's reflected in the new commitment Australia makes. So really momentous uh, year for, uh, on the climate issue. What does your survey show about Australian attitudes about these issues?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, Robert, it shows that these momentous changes around the world are not lost on the Australian public. They are engaged, they are aware, and we can see that the vast majority of Australians think that Australia should be doing more. Six in 10 Australians say we're doing too little to combat climate change. To be clear, they think that larger countries should be doing even more than us. We can see that Australians are disappointed in the responses of China, India and the United States. But there is still an overwhelming majority of Australians that say the benefits of taking further action on climate change outweigh the costs. An overwhelming majority that say that we should be setting a net zero emissions target for 2050. And in terms of what you just mentioned, I think it's really interesting to note ahead of that summit in Glasgow, 70% of Australians say that Australia should join other countries, such as the United Kingdom and the United States, to increase its commitments. It's only you know less than a third that say we should continue with our current policies as they stand.
5: I think there's generally, according to the, the survey, which been, has been conducted over many years now... There's generally been been growing interest, but there have been a few ebbs and flows in the support or changes uh, year to year. How easily are you able to map those to events that are happening uh, globally, regionally, or nationally here in Austria? Black Summer, for example, or COVID.
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting question. We actually, until last year, saw a fairly consistent trend in terms of views on. The climate. Back in 2006, in the early days of the Lowy Institute poll, we had the highest level of support for action on climate that we've ever seen in Australia. At that time, we had a momentous election, Kevin 07, we had the um, Al Gore inconvenient truth moment. All of that was happening, and I think there was a really high level of concern in the public. That went downhill over the course of the next seven years. Uh, Part of that, I think, was because the government was actually doing things and talking about introducing emissions trading schemes i think there was a sense in the australian public that this was an area of active policy making of course we shouldn't underestimate the fact that in those years also australia's long running drought broke and perhaps there was less concern in the community for that reason but from i have just
5: just to interrupt you a second i have seen a lot of studies that have shown that support public support for climate action and awareness of climate change as an issue is very much linked to particularly natural disasters uh, that are in the news, the extent to which they're in the news. So yeah, I think that's your, your view is borne out by a lot of analysis as well.
2: I think that's right. And it's very understandable when you think about greenhouse gases in the air that you can't see. I think that is hard for a lot of people to really respond to in a really urgent and critical way, unlike a flood or a bushfire or a drought. But so in 2013, you see the sentiment really turn around and it's been on essentially an upwards trajectory since then of course that is the time where Australia repealed its price on carbon and we've had coalition governments since then and perhaps that is a reason that there's been that increasing concern now, there is one dip, and that is in 2020, where concern about climate went backwards by a few points. This is very surprising to a lot of people uh, because, of course, Australia had its catastrophic summer of bushfires. And our polling is always done in March every year and so came quite soon after that horrific experience. But of course, by March 2020, Australians were living in the uncertainty of COVID-19 and wondering what the pandemic would bring. And so we can see that just last year, the concern around the pandemic overshadowed Australians' concern about climate change.
5: Hmm. That's really interesting. It, it uh, So there are links to what's happening. And of course, that's where perceptions come from. I guess public opinion is formed that way. What about, you know, one of the criticisms I've heard of some surveys, it's linked to the question I asked earlier, uh, is at least in the climate sphere, is that sometimes, depending on how the question's asked, you get a very strong, uh, in this case, positive uh, commitment to climate action, but that it's very wide but shallow support, that if you say, would you rather spend a dollar on climate action or a dollar on more jobs, the jobs win out. How, what does your survey suggest about this issue of how the depth of the commitment?
2: Yeah, I think that's just a fascinating issue because as we can see, climate change is a very important issue for a lot of Australians. But where does it come in terms of priorities and what sacrifices and costs are Australians willing to bear in exchange for this issue? So there's a few things I think that I would say. The first is that Of course, it's not a kind of dichotomy of a dollar on a job or a dollar on climate, and we know that. And so when we ask the questions, we have to be careful about how we frame them. But Australians are always going to say that health and education spending is their highest priority. I don't think that's ever going to change, and I think that's completely fair enough. What we've (laughs) seen over time is climate change moving up the list of priorities, moving up ahead of perhaps spending on defence or national security. Hmm. Um, And so that tells me that that sense of priority is shifting. But the other issue we have to think about with cost is what do we actually want Australians to do? I think it's one thing to say, vote on climate policy at a federal election, and it's another thing to say, install solar panels on your roof or drive an electric vehicle. So we have to understand when we're interpreting this data, what are the policy options that we're actually presenting to Australians?
5: Let me just take a moment. Thanks, that was uh very interesting, useful response to that question. Let me just ask about the Australians who are not in favour of action. It's kind of an interesting group. 30% say the support for federal government providing subs- should continue providing subsidies for new coal-fired plant plants. 24% say the cost of taking further action on climate will outweigh the benefits. Who are these people that have a radically different view from the majority of Australians. Do you have any sense of who they are?
2: Yeah, so as a general rule, they are older Australians. They tend to be over 60 in our data sets. They tend to be um, more likely to vote for the coalition, and so generally more conservative in their leanings. Um, We, of course, don't know where these people work or what exactly their personal priorities are. But I do think there is a mapping of some of those priorities onto jobs that are connected to fossil fuel industries and connected to coal exports. And so even though we still see that Six in 10 Australians would support a ban on new coal mines. You know, 63% say that we should be reducing our coal exports to other countries. As long as those industries are important providers of jobs and prosperity in Australia, I think you're going to see that sentiment continue, even in the minority. I will just say quickly, though, there isn't a special concentration of that sentiment in regional and rural areas.
5: Yeah, that's very interesting yeah because uh I, yeah and maybe you could share that fact with us in a moment but you know the gov- some government spokes uh officials have commented that uh, this is really an issue of urban versus rural australia that it's the perrier sipping urbanites in sydney that that care about climate change but what does this survey suggest about that
2: yeah, I mean, we hear this all of the time, and there is certainly a gap between the concern about climate change in urban populations and rural populations of Australia, but it's only a seven-point gap in 2021. That's really so yep. It's really and, interesting. And it's actually narrowed over time. A couple of years ago, it was closer to 10 or 12 points. So, we see that gap reducing, and it's just suddenly untrue, I think, when you're looking at any of this data to suggest that concern about climate change is exclusively a concern of urban Australians.
5: Or actually, I guess, of uh, people who vote for uh, the liberal, the coalition government, because really this isn't an issue that should be partisan. There can be debate about how we respond to this huge threat that lies ahead and huge opportunity in terms of our energy and economic future but it really doesn't have to be a bipartisan issue. Natasha, thank you very much for joining us to share your insights on uh, this really important survey from Lowy.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Robert.
0: ASPE's annual cost of defence report breaks down the funding and expenditure of the Department of Defence. Report author Dr Marcus Hellyer discusses some of the trends highlighted in this year's report with Peter Jennings
6: well i'm here talking to marcus Sellier about what he claims is the fifth installment of the cost of defense why do you call it five Marcus?
3: well because we did two last year peter very special year last year because the government put out its uh, defense strategic update so we dedicated a special edition to the defense strategic update plus our usual one that is time to come out just after the budget so i've been here a little over three and a half years or approaching three and a half years and I've done five editions. So you're getting very good value for money out of me, Peter.
6: Well, let's, let's leave that to the viewers to judge. But uh, Marcus, congratulations on getting this one done. What, what are the highlights for Defence coming out of this year's budget? Well, I think once
3: again, the government has delivered the money it promised, essentially back in the White Paper in 2016, but then it re-signed up to that funding model in last year's Defence Strategic Update. And since the White Paper, the government has delivered pretty much every dollar it promised, and this year was no exception. So the so-called Consolidated Defence uh, funding line, so the Department of Defence and the Australian Signals Directorate, this year is 44. point. 0.6 billion dollars
6: having uh, set the 2% of gross national product as its benchmark for defense adequacy which mm-hmm. is the sort of the nato shorthand shorthand the government now seems quite keen to no longer be using that 2% figure what, mm-hmm. why is that so when the government was
3: elected, you know, many years ago now, it I think made an early commitment then to restore the defence budget to 2% of GDP. And it made steady progress towards that. But then in the 2016 white paper, it actually said it was decoupling defence funding from any specific percentage of GDP, because if GDP goes up, then the defence budget goes up. And if GDP goes down, the defence budget goes down. makes long-term planning very difficult when defence is carrying out projects that can last for decades. So essentially, in the 2016 white paper, it still said it would hit 2% of GDP by 2021 which it has done, Uh, but it then set out in black and white an exact figure that it would give defence over the subsequent decade, and to date it has done that. And then in uh, the DSU in the middle of last year, it reaffirmed that number and extended it for a further four years for a a new decade, essentially. So it's essentially been decoupled from 2% for a number of years now. The interesting thing is, is that that number set out in black and white continues to grow over the decade well beyond two percent of GDP. So um, that number in the next few years will actually, the difference between what defence is getting and two percent will reach about five billion dollars. So if a future government did come along and say, well, uh, actually, we think two percent is enough, defence will take a
6: significant budget hit. Of course, the strategic developments over that period of time, and, and frankly, a little before the 2016 white paper as well, are making the region more risky, uh, uh, more competitive in terms of military. Capabilities. Is is 2% or something like it adequate in your view for Australia's defence needs these days?
3: Well, there's a bit of a Dorothy Dixer, isn't? <laughs> isn't it, Peter? Well, I know your views on that, and I think we broadly are aligned in our views there, and that 2% I don't think is enough. Uh, 2% may work if you're a member of NATO. If you're Belgium, you know, you're a- allied with six or seven of the largest, 10 largest GDPs in the world, uh, including the US. And And, you know, you are surrounded by very uh, wealthy and powerful states. And the only sort of real threat is Russia, which is actually not even in the top 10. So Belgium and the Netherlands can maybe get by on 2%. I'm not sure Australia can, noting that our one major ally in the region, and I'm talking about the US, not New Zealand, is, uh, you know, while. You know, we can discuss how wobbly it is. I think the bottom line is, is however much it may want to assist Australia, it may have capacity constraints in future with the rise of Chinese power. So I think 2%. We have gotten off very lightly, I think, over the last 70 years spending what we have on defence. We've uh, enjoyed unprecedented sort of levels of peace and prosperity for not much money. I think we now need to go, well, we may actually have to pay a little more to preserve that peace
6: and prosperity. I, I would agree with that, Marcus. Uh, I'd, I'd like to talk about the the imbalance between the delivery of some of those big-ticket capability items, um, future frigate, future submarine, of course, and the current strategic outlook, which presents a much more pressing set of problems than is really addressed by those long-term capability developments. What's your thinking about that particular dilemma?
3: Well, I think uh, you and I and many other people sort of had that same impression when the, the Defence Strategic Update came out. There are a number of very striking judgments. I think it's a key document that for the first time in a long time, we're calling a spade a spade. And some of those judgments were... Uh, we need new capabilities. That the ADF largely has defensive capabilities, which aren't well suited for our strategic circumstances, and we need things like long-range strike capabilities that can impose cost on an adversary at greater range. And we also no longer have warning time. You know, so two very, I think, frank, striking judgments. But then you look at the supporting force structure plan uh, and not much has fundamentally changed. There are some new capabilities in there, but they tend to be some way out. So, yes, I think there is a disjuncture there between the urgency and the delivery plan for, for capabilities. And um, this budget, I think, you know, doesn't really change that. So if we look at the slow ramp up of the naval shipbuilding program, for example, that includes the future frigate and future submarine, they're aiming to hit about two and a half billion dollars in spend this year. The frigate is still a year and a half away from construction. The submarine is still maybe three to four years away from construction. So that annual spend has still got a long way to go, potentially to well over $4 billion a year. But we don't actually get the first frigate for another 10 years and the first submarine for another 13 years. So the question is, what can we do to get more capability sooner? And I know a lot of people in defence are thinking about that. A lot of people in the strategic policy community are thinking about that. And there's a, there's a few ideas, but you know the, the challenge is you don't get major new capabilities
6: overnight well government i I think is alive to the problem and we've we've seen for example uh uh, attempts to accelerate at least as defense would see it um domestic missile production Mm -hmm. for example which um even on the fastest possible time frame is perhaps three to five years away what what in your view would be some of those clever investments that we could make that could help strengthen the ADF of today in relatively short term?
3: Relatively short term? Well, I do think uh, investment in hypersonic missiles is something we should be pursuing. There is a program to do that in cooperation with the US, but I think it's such a uh, potentially good capability, we should be pursuing different avenues, and so certainly attempting to design and build something domestically, and it wouldn't necessarily have to be the most sophisticated weapon in the world. I mean, if it was something that you could launch off the back of a a truck, it could go 2,000 kilometres and hit a GPS point and you had, you know, hundreds of them, that would, I think, get any adversary's attention because they would know that if they tried to operate in our near region to establish a forward operating base, whether it's an airfield or a port in our near region, that we could you know, pretty effectively target it. So almost immediately, I think it starts to change the calculus of any potential adversary.
6: Onto to a people question, yes. uh, an area that, that your report had got a bit of media coverage around this year was about the role of uh, contractors inside the Defence Department. What's that story about? So that story is, is now
3: Defence conducts an external workforce uh, census every year. Uh, and that includes, you know, the the so-called highly paid consultants who borrow your watch to tell you the time. But there's only a couple of hundred of them. There's over 20,000 um, external uh, service providers. And so those are the people on bases preparing meals or maintaining buildings or conducting maintenance on aircraft and vehicles. But then there's this other category called contractor, and the number of contractors has grown to about 6,800. And those, by Defence's own definition, are people essentially doing the same job as a public servant or an ADF member. And so those are the people that Defence has increasingly had to engage to help deliver this very rapidly growing acquisition program which is over the course of the decade is uh, going to grow to probably double, well over double what it was a couple of years ago. So Defence needs to run more projects and it needs people to do it, but its public service numbers are capped. So it's had to uh, hire so-called contractors. That's probably costing Defence about $1.5 billion a year. And if you do just do some very basic analysis, it looks like, Uh, Your average public servant costs about $120,000 a year, but your average contractor costs about $280,000 a year, so well over twice as much. And you've got to ask yourself, well, what that means is we're probably paying about a billion dollars a year more for contractors than if we just had public servants. And where's that money coming from? Well, it's essentially coming out of the acquisition and sustainment program. So
6: in a sense, it's costing us capability to do that. Marcus, in in the life of the coalition government, going back to when Tony Abbott was first elected, what one of their initial um, actions in defence was to reduce the size of the uh, public service mm-hmm. civilian workforce, which went, uh, if my memory serves me right, from around twenty two thousand to about seventeen thousand, which is where it is today. I mean, are we really paying? Are we paying a price now for that decision to reduce those numbers? Do you think? I think we are. You know, um, I think it's pretty
3: clear that we need to be around about those numbers. Now, contractors do a great job. There is a, certainly a role for contractors, but the role for contractors in my view is to provide short-term skills when you need them on a surge basis or as a short-term replacement. What we're seeing is that contractors have now essentially become permanent parts mm-hmm. of defence. So there are contractors who've been doing the same job for three or four years. To me, that should probably be a public service job. So it is a controversial issue. It's a sensitive issue for conservative governments. Um, And defence is in an awkward position. The government wants it to go out and spend all of the capability money that it's giving it. So, you know, the, the $270 billion on capability over the decade that the government keeps referring to it wants that money spent. Well, defence needs people to do that, so it has to use contractors. So it's you know, it's not the fault of the contractors. So but I think the government does need to be aware that it's probably paying about a billion dollars premium that's coming out of its capability budget
6: for that. Well, as always, Marcus, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating read. I particularly like the uh, defense in 10 tables and charts, which you've got. I love the prior cartoon on the cover of the book as well. Congratulations for tracking that down. Uh, tell me, Marcus, what's on your research agenda for the remainder of the year?
3: Well, I think there's always more to be said about submarines. So as you know, the, the government, is, it's a bit coy at the moment, but it does seem that it is looking at, if not an option to replace Plan A, so the attack class submarine, it's looking at Plan Bs or other things it could be doing at the same time. So I think that's worthy of consideration. And I think the broader issue, what can defence do to get more capability quickly, I think is certainly something that more people need to be looking at. Marcus, thanks. It's great talking to you. Thank you, Peter.
0: That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon.